Welcome to the WGN Radio Theater Program 467 in the series. It's May 2nd, 2020, and we will be here till 3 o'clock in the morning playing all your favorite classic radio shows. My co-host is Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Carl. How are you? I'm doing well. Good, good. That's important. And we have a lot of classic radio for our listeners all the way to 3 o'clock. We're going to start things off with Inner Sanctum Mystery, scary stuff from 1946. Then it's the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show from 1950. Then Escape from 1953, Dimension X from 1950, and Have Gun Will Travel from 1959. We'll also have another five-part Yours Truly Johnny Dollar Adventure from 1956 called The Fathom Five Matter, starring Bob Bailey. That's all coming your way right after these words. Welcome back to Hour 1 of the WGN Radio Theater. I do want to remind everyone listening that there are five classic radio shows waiting for you to digitally download absolutely free at our website, 100radioshows.com. And if you decide to purchase any of the hundreds of other classic radio shows at that website, make sure you use the promo code... Radio. We have some great shows there. Go to the website, 100radioshows.com. You'll save 70% if you use the promo code at checkout. All right, it's time now for Inner Sanctum Mystery. This was a mystery, terror, and suspense series. Came to radio in 1941. It was created, produced, and directed by Hyman Brown. It was hosted by Raymond Edward Johnson. He was Raymond, our host, and he delivered his lines in a tongue-in-cheek tone, which was in stark contrast to shows like Suspense and The Whistler. The creaking door trademark was a studio door that squeaked like crazy, and Hyman Brown said, you know, I'm going to make that door a star, and the door was used originally, but did not always squeak, so they used a rusty desk chair for the majority of the broadcasts. Boris Karloff, Peter Lorre were on the show for a while, but mostly it was New York's uh, old pros like Mason Adams, Mercedes McCambridge, Santos Ortega, Lawson Zerby, Louis Van Ruten, and others. We have a inner sanctum mystery now for you from January 29th, 1946. This is called The Blood of Cain, and it stars Mercedes McCambridge. Now uninterrupted, here's Inner Sanctum Mystery. Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup present Inner Sanctum Mysteries. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host to welcome you through the creaking door. We're going to begin tonight's festivities on a scientific note with something that will save you a good deal of money. Mm-hmm. Yes, it seems that quite a few people have taken to turning off their refrigerators during this program. Yes, they've discovered they can deep freeze all sorts of things by just listening to Inner Sanctum. Letting their blood run cold. <laughs> well, Mr. Host, that's quite an idea. Have you any other scientific suggestions? Oh, certainly, Mary. 
For instance, here's a way to cut down on your laundry bills. Instead of having the laundry starch your clothes, just put them on top of your radio Tuesday nights. In a sanctum, we'll scare them stiff. <laughs> <laughs> now, friends, lend an ear to tonight's story. An original radio play by Robert Newman called Blood of Cain. Starring two of your radio favorites, Mercedes McCambridge and Carl Swenson. A tale of blood spilled in hatred and vengeance. Of blood that carries a curse that is as old as man. Mm-hmm. You don't believe that's possible, eh? Then suppose you put out all the lights, pull your chair up close, and listen. A small square, once fashionable, on the outskirts of New Orleans. The iron balconies where elegant ladies once sat are now rusty and sagging. The paint on the rambling houses is cracked and peeling, and grass grows between the cobblestones. The bayous and the jungle have crept close to it, and at night the cries of strange birds, the croaking of giant frogs can be heard. What was formerly a living portion of the old world has become a place of decay and death. More pigeons died this evening. I saw them towering up and up into the darkening sky as if to escape the pain gnawing at their vitals and then fall into the square and into the garden. I still didn't believe, couldn't let myself believe. And then I saw her standing in the shrubbery the bag from which she had been feeding them still in her hand. I knew then that I could wait no longer, that I had to find out. Louise? Eugene, the pigeons, there's something wrong with them. They're... Dying, yes. How? And why? I'm no chemist, but I'd, I'd say it was poison. Poison? But who would do that? Louise. Now listen to me, dear. Please listen. I love you. I've loved you since I first came down here. First met you. You know that. And you know that I'll understand. Now tell me, why have you been doing it? I? You're the only one who feeds them. The only one who could do it. Oh, no, I didn't. Louise, where are you? Grandfather. Oh, oh, my dear child, what is it? The pigeons. They're dying. It's the second day now. And Eugene said... He said what? Have you looked at any of them, Dr. Phillips? Examined them? Will you go into the house, my dear? I'll be along in just a minute. But, Grandfather... Please, please, dear. Yes, Grandfather. Go ahead. I'm very sorry you did this, Owen. Mentioned it to her. Did you examine any of the pigeons? I did. Poison. Probably from my laboratory. But then... Then you know... I know a great deal, Mr. Owen. I'm her grandfather. And I think it would be very wise if you kept away from Louise. Did not see her again. What? Well, that's ridiculous. I, I love her. I'm, I'm sure you do. But perhaps I did not make myself clear. If you continue to see her, it might prove dangerous for you. Oh, 
I didn't eat any supper that night. I went back to my room and sat there in the dark, staring at the shuttered, brooding house. About 11 o'clock, the door of the doctor's house opened quietly, and Louise came out. Without looking right or left, moving almost like a sleepwalker, she went up the street. I hesitated only a minute, and then I hurried down the stairs and after her. And just as I got downstairs, the door opened again, and... Is that you, Owen? Well, yes, Doctor. She just left the house. I was watching from the window. Yes, and... I know. She's done it several times, and this time I was determined to follow her and see where she goes. Look, she's hailing a cab. My car's right across the street. Quick. Louise went in there. What, what kind of a place is that? Yeah, that smell. It's the smell of death. From the noise, I would say it was an abattoir. A slaughterhouse? Good Lord. But, but, but why? Why would she come down here in the dead of night? I like you, Owen. I think you know that. And it was for your own sake that I warned you to keep away from her. There are things that you do not... Well, that you cannot know about her. No? Well, we'll see. I'm going in and get her and find out from her. Just a moment. There she is. Just inside the gate, talking to the watchman. No sense arguing about it, lady. I just can't let you in. But you must. You've got to. You always did before. That's just it. Now, once was all right, even twice. But, well, if you want to know the truth, the men have been complaining. Nobody exactly likes killing steers. But they say that the way you stand there watching them, well, well it makes them nervous. You've got to let me in. I'll make it worth your while. Now, watching the killing? Me, I... I've just got orders from the Oh, Oh, that's awful. It's horrible. I'm, 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 I'm going in again. No, 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 no. In, in the state she's in, well, having you come on her suddenly would have a very bad effect. But uh, you wait here. I'll no, go. No, 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 don't hit me. No. Louise. What is? What, what, what happened to Watchman? This stone here on the temple. Louise. Why did you do this? I, I don't know. I had to get in here. He wouldn't let me in. Take her out to the car, Owen. Come on, let's go. You can't go now. Leave him lying there like that. He's he's hurt. He may be dying. No, no, it's not serious. He's just stunned. We can phone for an ambulance as soon as we get home. But we've got to get her away from here immediately. Sit down, Louise. Yes, Grandfather. I'm sorry I ran away like that, Eugene. But I suddenly felt strange. Ill. That's all right, Louise. You've been feeling that way quite often lately, haven't you? Yes. Yes, I have. Just what makes this feeling so strange? Well, it, it's hard to describe. It's as if I weren't myself anymore. It's the opposite of sleepwalking. It's as if I were awake, but not really conscious. And I hear voices, voices telling me to do things and whispering a name, a name that sounds like Jonard. Like what? You've been in my study reading my books. No, but I haven't, Grandfather. You always forbade me to... And how did you know that name? Well, whose name is it? And well, what does it have to do with Louise? It's the name of a family which is almost extinct. 
And it is a name which means death. Well, what do you mean? I was always very interested in the Jeunard family for reasons of my own. And I've collected all the historical references to them that I could. These references start with the 13th and 14th century. But by the 15th century, they had become the traditional executioners of France. Executioners? And in those days, you know what that meant. It was a Jeunard who put the torch to Jeanne d'Arc. A Jeunard received a handsome request from Louis XI for services rendered. A Jeunard operated the guillotine during the French Revolution. Perhaps that's why the family migrated here after the fall of the Republic. They came here? Yes. Twenty-odd years ago, there were a whole series of particularly atrocious murders here. The murderer was finally caught and executed. His name was Max Jeunard. Why do you tell me all this? And why should I constantly seem to hear that name? Well, even when you were little, my dear, you used to have those strange fits, spells when you would do unpleasant things. Afterward, you could never remember them. Oh. Now, do you remember poisoning the pigeons and going to the slaughterhouse? What? Oh, no, well, no. I've never discussed the matter with you because I thought it might actually implant the idea in your mind. I'd hope that if you were left alone, you'd outgrow it, but... But what? You still haven't told me what all this about the Jonas has to do with me. It has a great deal to do with you, my dear. You see, Max Jonat was your father. to get down to business again. The kind of business that Louise's family has specialized in for a good many years. Murder. Oh, I know that what she's been interested in so far is small fry, but I think from now on she'll really be cooking with gas. Just a moment later now. Sitting in Dr. Philippe's study, Louise and Eugene Owen stare at the elderly gentleman with shock and horror in their eyes. You mean my father was a murderer? Your father, and his father before him, back as far as the family's history can be traced. Well, I don't believe it. And even if it is true, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to think this need to kill can be passed on from generation to generation. Well, of course, Owen, there is absolutely no scientific basis for it. Still, how else can you explain some of the things that Louise has been doing? Oh, it's true, it's true. These spells that come over me when I don't know what I'm doing... That name which I never heard consciously until... Oh, no, it can't be true. It can't... Oh, Louise, there No, Eugene, don't. Don't come near me. Don't touch me. If there's even a chance that it's so... Well, I didn't want to tell you. I I was never very close to your father because he was a rather strange son-in-law. But if you want to know more about him, there is someone you should talk to. Joel Ferguson, down on Gaylord Street. He was the very last person to see your father alive. Yes, who is it? Mr. Ferguson? Yes, who is it? My name is Louise Philippe. I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. Just a second. Come in. In here. Thank you. What did you say your name was again? Louise Philippe. 
At least that's what I always believed it was. Until yesterday. And then I discovered that my name was Louise Jonas. Jonas? Not Max Jonas? Yes. He was my father. What do you want of me? After all these years, it wasn't my fault. You know it wasn't my fault. I, I only did what I had to do. I don't know what you mean. I was told that you were the last person to see him alive. And that perhaps you could tell me something about him. Yes. There are things that I can tell you. That he was evil, but that he knew he was evil. There was a curse on him that made him do the things he did do. Voices that whispered in his ear, told him to kill, made him kill. Voices? And in the end, at the last minute, he thanked me. He thanked you for what? For stopping him from doing any more killing in the only way he could be stopped. And when I put the rope around his neck... The, the rope? I was the state executioner. It was I who hanged him. You... You killed my father. I, I only carried out the sentence that was passed on him. And, and why... Why are you looking at me that way? I didn't know. I only came here to see you because... You're lying. You were his daughter. Then you were like him... You came down here to kill me. Kill you? That, that knife there in your bag. Huh? I didn't even know it was there. You're lying. Keep away from me. Keep away. But I didn't come down here to kill you. Then stop staring at me like that. Put that knife away. No, no, don't come near me. Don't. Good evening, Mr. Owen. Uh, where's Miss Louise Benson? I must see her right away. Uh, I'm sorry, sir, but she's not in. She went out about a half hour ago. Oh, uh, well, where did she go? I'm afraid I don't know, sir. She didn't say. Well, what about Dr. Philippe? He's not in either, sir. He left right after Miss Louise as soon as he heard that she'd gone out. Oh? It seemed to me, sir, he looked rather worried. He said something about uh, Mr. Ferguson. Ferguson? Great Scott! If she went down... Thank you. Who's that? I'm looking for Miss Louise Philippe. I was told that she... Is, is that you, Dr. Philippe? Yes, Eugene. Is she here? Yes, she's here. But you're too late. Just as I was too late. Why? What, what do you mean? Inside there. See for yourself. Oh, don't tell me that anything's happened to... Good. Lord. Louise. She won't answer you. That's the way I found her when I got here. Sitting there with a knife in her hand and Ferguson lying across the table, dead. Eugene. Louise. Eugene. Oh, Louise, Eugene. darling. Oh, why did you do it? Do... Do what? Dad. Yes, dear. Didn't you do it? I don't know. I didn't even know who he was when I came down here. And I found out that it was he who executed my father. 
Then I started to hear those voices. Voices telling me to kill, that I had to kill. Then there was a knife in my hand. Oh, I can't remember. Voices. That's what Max said at the trial. That was the only defense he offered, but that he heard voices telling him to kill. Didn't save him. But in your case, a woman... What do you say? Well, there's no sense even trying to escape. That would only make things worse, you know that. Yes, Grandfather. Except that there is only one way that things could be it worse. That is, if I were allowed to live. But Louise, don't say that. You must... Oh, it's true, Eugene. For centuries to be a Jonah meant to bear the mark of Cain. Well, I'm the last of the Jonahs, and there must never be another... Well, I had not gone quite that far, my dear, but perhaps you're right. I am right. Goodbye, Grandfather. Eugene! Louise, come back. Wait! No, no, no. Let her go, Eugene. She's my own flesh and blood. But I think that may be the best way, after all. Yes, well, we'll see. Louise! Wait, please! It's no use, Eugene. It's all very clear. Clear as witches, bro. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Maybe it's because of our love that I understand. Maybe that was what was wrong with the Jonars. They never knew love, only hatred. But there is a cure. It lies there, in the river. Louise. No, please, dear. There's a curse on me, on all the Jonars that ever were. You're right. There is a curse, but not the kind you think, dear. Listen, I was at the library all afternoon reading, and I think I understand now, for the first time. You understand what? The nature of the curse, and how it can be ended. Because it can be ended, in only one way. Eugene? Is that you? Eugene? No, Grandfather. It's not Eugene. Louise, why, I thought you... Why did you come back here to Ferguson's place? I don't know, Grandfather. The voices, the call in my blood, it's too strong. I tried, I wanted to end it finally and completely, either in the river or with the police... But I couldn't. You mean you're not going to give yourself up? No, Grandfather. I'm not going to give myself up. But that's not all I mean. Louise, you still got that knife? Yes, Grandfather. Walking up the street, realizing that I was still holding it, that it was red with blood. I think it was then that I knew for the first time what it meant to be a Jonah. Oh, look, Louise, you're completely distraught. That, that's only natural. But now, look, you put that knife down and let me take you home. I'll give you something that'll help you sleep and then... No, tomorrow... Grandfather, you won't give me anything. Ever again. Well, Louise, you... You're not going to kill me. Yes, Grandfather, that's just what I'm going to oh, do. No, please, don't... no, don't try to get away. I'm younger Louise, and quicker than you. Sake, Louise. Just one quick... No, 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 Louise, no, 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 listen to me. Listen carefully. You can't kill me. There's nothing driving you to do it. You see, you're not as you're not. What are you saying? It's true. I, I am a Jonat. Max Jonat was my son. But you're not evenly, distantly re related to us. You're lying. You're lying. You're just saying that. No, no, no. no. I, I swear it's true. I changed my name when I studied medicine to avoid the stigma. But Max kept it. Your father was Louis Martin, the judge. You're lying. How is that possible? But because I adopted you after your father's death. For a reason. 
It was your father who condemned Max to death. He didn't know Max was my son, and I didn't tell him until later. Your mother died when you were born, and I, I was your father's physician. And when he was desperately ill, I offered to adopt you and take care of you. Then when the papers were signed, I told him who I was, what I was going to do, that I was going to destroy you to avenge my son. And that's what killed him. But all those horrible things I've been doing, poisoning the pigeons, killing Fergus... You haven't been doing them. It was I who did them, using drugs and suggestion to make you believe that it was you, so that you would either destroy yourself or... Oh, thank heaven, Eugene! Eugene, did you hear? Yes, dearest, I, I heard. And I told you, didn't I? Eugene! So it was a trick. A trick to trap me. Yes, doctor, it was. I was at the library and at City Hall all day looking up the records. Here, drop that knife. No, Owen. This won't be as poetic a death as the one I'd planned for her, but... Uh, the lights! Louise, put the lights out! Oh, that won't help you. Either of you. You won't get away. I'll find you in the light or in the darkness. And... Ah, there you are. Die, then. Now you'll die! 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 Louise! It's not all! It's not you! What did... Then who did... Let go of me! Let go of me! Lights! Louise, quickly! Eugene, what happened? Who did he... Fergus? Yes. He stumbled into him in the darkness. Thought it was one of us. Then he must have tripped. The knife. He must have fallen on the knife. Well, somehow it... It seems only right... That the last of the journals... Who killed so many... Should be destroyed by the dead. character we certainly could use on this program. But now at least you've got the perfect answer for the rest of your family when you meet them in the... wherever it is that dead murderers congregate. When they ask you who you were with last night, you can always say, that was no lady, that was my knife. <laughs> well, I'm glad you could put a new point on that old joke, Mr. Host. Oh, I like to sharpen up an old saw now and then, Mary. <laughs> well, let me see what I can do along those lines. Um, how about the best things in life are tea? Mary, <laughs> I'm afraid your enthusiasm for Lipton's has got the best of you. <laughs> well, maybe you're right, Mr. Host. But it's so easy to be enthusiastic about Lipton's. Once you taste that marvelous, brisk flavor, you can't help being a real Lipton fan. And that lively, zestful taste is something you folks should start to enjoy right now. Next time you visit the grocers, get a package of Lipton tea. Try it. I know you'll enjoy it. May I add a word of advice, friends? If you should happen to bump into an elderly gentleman dressed all in black on a dark street some night, don't get into an argument with him. Especially if he happens to be carrying a bloodstained knife. 
After all, you can end up just as stiff if you're dead right as if you're dead wrong. <laughs> oh, by the way, this month's Inner Sanctum mystery novel is The Pavilion by Hilda Lawrence. And next week's Inner Sanctum story, brought to you by the makers of Lipton Tea and Lipton Soup, and directed by Hyman Brown. Next week's story is called Skeleton Bay. It's about a lady novelist who writes murder mysteries until she decides she'd rather be a character instead of an author. She chooses Skeleton Bay as a vacation spot, but it turns out to be her last resort. <laughs> now join us next Tuesday on Skeleton Bay. Until then, friends, good night. Pleasant dreams? Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday night for another Inner Sanctum Mystery. And that's Inner Sanctum Mystery from January 29th, 1946, with The Blood of Cain, starring Mercedes McCambridge, sponsored by Lipton Tea, as heard on CBS. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, for the last few weeks, we have been tuning in to Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar five-part adventure starring Bob Bailey. Now, I know Mike Costello loves Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, as do many of our listeners. They've been texting in, writing in, emailing in, saying how much they love these five-part adventures. So I have another one for you. Let's go back for the first part now from February 27th, 1956. This is the Fathom Five matter on Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Ralph Steedler, Johnny. Delta liability. Oh, hiya, Ralph. What's on your mind? Poetry, you Philistine. Hmm? The bard's immortal words. Which words? Full fathom five thy father lies. Of his bones are corals made. And those... Those are pearls that were his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> What's the case, Ralph? Robbery? A pearl necklace? Ah, uh, life insurance. $75,000 worth of bones. Down on the bottom of the deep blue sea. Or so they say. So who say? The insured's wife. The insured's best friend. Oh, they're quite positive about it. But you're not, is that it? Johnny, if I'm going to be stuck for 75 Gs, at least I ought to get the straight dope, shouldn't I? All right, I'll get it for you. Give me the who and where. It happened in Miami Beach. Check with the DA's office there. The insured was a man named William Markey. And the beneficiary? His wife, poor wretch. Oh, you're biased, Ralph. Sure, I'm paying alimony. So look it over, Johnny, and keep in touch. <laughs> Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Home Office, Delta Liability, Hartford, Connecticut... The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Fathom Five matter. 
Item one, $143.40. Transportation, tips, and incidentals, Hartford to Miami. Purpose of assignment, aside from a chance to get a look at the sun, to check into the death of one William Markey, or to find out if there was a death, and how it happened, and where was the body, and if not, why not, and if so, how? Or rather, to determine... Well, anyway, the deputy investigator from the DA's office, a man named Barney Wilson, was at least as confused as I was. And he'd had a two-day head start. Now, we're going on the assumption, of course, that the man is dead. But legally, you understand, the fact hasn't yet been established. Meaning exactly what, Mr. Wilson? Well, it's pretty strong evidence, but no corpus delicti. Not so far, anyway. Maybe you'd better start at the beginning. And that would be where, Mr. Donner? How much do you know about the case? Well, uh, very little. Mm -hmm. The dead man, if he is dead, was named William Markey. He was uh, 46 years old, owner of a consulting engineering firm in New York. Mm -hmm. He'd been married to his present wife for three years. Her age is 30, and she's the beneficiary of his insurance. And, I might add, a charming and lovely young woman. They've been down here for about a month. And three days ago, Markey was killed, or allegedly killed, in an accident. That's right. Drowned, as I understand it, when a fishing launch sank a mile or two offshore. And then... Well, you can take it from there, Mr. Wilson. Now, your responsibility in the case is primarily to the insurance company. Is that right, Mr. Donner? Entirely, not primarily. Why, what do you mean? And it would be to the company's advantage if Markey's death were not legally established, huh? (laughs) They wouldn't have to pay the claim, if that's what you mean. Then it's reasonable to suppose, since the whole case is uh, pretty vague at present, that your efforts will be devoted to creating doubts as to whether Markey is really dead. Mr. Wilson, I think it's reasonable to suppose that I can't very well answer your questions without knowing exactly what has happened. Uh-huh. Well, all right, then. Briefly, this is it. Apparently, Markey came down here to bid on a construction job, a manufacturing plant. We didn't get the job. But he stayed on, he and his wife, and the young fellow that was with him. What young fellow? Name of Danny Haynes. He worked for Markey, a draftsman, an engineer. Evidently a personal friend of the Markey's. Oh. The three of them took a house down the beach south and spent all their time together, nightclubbing one thing and another. I see. Anyhow, well, three days ago, Markey and young Haynes went out fishing together. Hired a charter boat, a small cabin cruiser named the Fathom Five and headed south along coast, working the offshore banks. Whose idea was the trip? Markey's, according to young Haynes. In fact, all the rest of the story is according to Haynes. Nobody else saw what happened. And what did happen? Well, Haynes says they anchored off the reef, and both of them fished from the dinghy for a while. Then Markey decided he'd go back to the cruiser and fix some breakfast. Mm -hmm. Haynes put him aboard and took the dinghy out alone. He says he fished along the reef for about 30 minutes before he looked back and saw the cruiser was afire. It was nearly a mile away, according to his story, and by the time he got back, the boat was a pillar of flame. He didn't see any sign of Marky? No, he says not. He couldn't get aboard because of the flames, and uh, a few minutes later, the cruiser sank. Mm -hmm. No one else saw it? There were no other boats around? No, it was early morning, and there weren't many others out. It had rained during the night, and there was a fairly heavy fog. They're only a mile and a half or so offshore, so Haynes rode in with the dinghy and reported it. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what was the depth of the ocean where the cruiser sank? Oh, it was only about 50 feet. I've got a salvage company working now to raise it. Get a diver down? Yes, but he didn't find out much. He couldn't get inside the hole. That's about the size of it, huh? Mm-hmm, it is. 
until they get that cruiser raised so we can take a look at it. And, of course, it may not tell us a thing. What about the currents along the reef where that boat went down? Oh, they're pretty bad. Strong and erratic. A body could be carried through the reefs and on out to sea and never be found. Well, I was uh, thinking more of the possibility of a good swimmer getting into shore. You said they were anchored only a mile and a half out. Yes, well, it's possible, but not very probable. He'd have been seen by Haynes or somebody else. There was a heavy fog, wasn't there? Mm Mm-hmm, fairly heavy. And, of course, Haynes could be lying. Maybe he did see him. I said it was possible. But that's not the line I'm planning to take, Mr. Dollar. So I got it. They'll bring that hull to the surface sometime tomorrow. Now, maybe we'll have some evidence then. Or maybe Marky's body will turn up in the next 48 hours. And if not? Then, Mr. Dollar, I will petition the probate court to declare him legally dead. I suppose you've got some reason for all this, Rush. Yes. I want the fact of death established in order to file a murder charge. Danny Haynes? Who else? It's the old, old story, isn't it? Two men go out and only one comes back. Unwitnessed accident. Nothing new about it. No, no. And it's never been an easy one to prove. Well, it'll be a lot tougher a year from now if you people put up a fight and force the decision up to the superior court. Suppose Haynes himself fights it. I wish he'd try. Be the next thing to an admission of guilt. Oh, Mrs. Markey, she has legal status in the case. She could do it, but she won't. Yeah, you're probably right. She wouldn't be likely to throw away $75,000. Well, I can't tell you what we'll do yet, Mr. Wilson. I'll have to look around first, talk to the people involved, get my feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. Fine, well, you just do that. Here, I'll give you the addresses. Oh, good. Mrs. Markey's still at the beach house. Young Haynes has moved into a hotel near there. All right, thanks. Say... How did the three of them get along during the month they've been here? Like peas in a pod, from all appearances. Of uh, course, what was going on behind the scenes might have been another story. (laughs) It usually is. I think that's where we'll find the motive. Not that Mrs. Markey encouraged Haynes at all. She's a fine woman. I know, and she's beautiful. And this is the South. How's that? So long, Mr. Wilson. I'll keep in touch. Expense account item two, $3.35. Telegram to Hartford requesting an investigation of the Markey firm's financial status, both currently and over the past three years. And a similar check of Markey's personal financial status. Item three, $4.10. Taxi to the Pompano Beach Hotel to talk with the DA's prime suspect, Danny Haynes. Look, Mr. Dollar, I've been over the whole thing with the police a half a dozen times. I'd still like to ask you a few questions, if you don't mind. They've got the whole story, all I know about it. They had a stenographer to take it down. Why don't you go to them with your questions? Hmm, Maybe I got different questions. I told them everything I know about it. Look, Danny, you don't have to talk to me, but if you're smart, you will. Why so? Because the police already have their minds made up. Or at least Barney Wilson has. Sure. He's out to prove I killed Mr. Markey. Well, look, my mind isn't made up yet, so you can't lose anything by talking to me. Unless, of course, you did kill him. It happened exactly the way I told them. All right, what do you want to know? How long did you work for Markey? Two years. You get along with him all right? Sure. It was a good job. No complaints. You got to be pretty close personal friends, I understand. Well, I used to go to their apartment in New York once or twice a week for dinner, drinks. And then the three of you came down here together on a vacation. It wasn't a vacation. Mr. Markey came down to bid on a job. Did he need you along for that? Well, he thought there might be some sketches or plans to draw up. And were there? Well, no. As it turned out, they weren't necessary. Hmm. Funny, Marky wouldn't know that ahead of time, being an engineer. Well, actually, it was sort of Edna's suggestion of Mrs. Markey, I mean. 
I see. Yeah, now I see. Now look, don't get the idea there's been anything between us. She's been swell to me. She's... Well, she's just wonderful, that's all. All right, all right. So the three of you came down on business, and within a few days, the job contract was awarded to another firm, but you still stayed on for three more weeks. That was Marky's idea. I don't know why, exactly. I know he'd counted a lot on getting that job, but I was getting a free vacation. Why should I argue? So all of you just relaxed and lived it up, huh? Yeah, that's about it. Mr. Marky, too? No apparent worries on his mind? Well, he was moody sometimes. Went off by himself. But that wasn't too unusual. He was like that quite a lot. He and his wife seem to be getting along, all right? Sure. As far as I noticed, why? Well, let's talk about that accident for a minute, Danny. Whose idea was it to go on the fishing trip? Mr. Markey's. He woke me up at five in the morning, said he'd already phoned and hired the boat. The Phantom Five? Yeah, the same one we'd had a couple of times before. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't much for it. It was misting out with a heavy fog, but he was real hot on the idea, and I couldn't very well argue he was the boss. Was Mrs. Markey up when you left? No, but she knew we were going. She'd packed a lunch. I guess they'd talked about it the night before. All right, you took the boat out then and followed the reef south, and what happened? Well, we anchored as close as we could get to the reef and went out in the dinghy for about an hour. No luck at all. Then Mr. Markey decided he'd go back on board and fix something to eat. Mm -hmm. I let him off and then rowed back along the reef. I figured as long as I'd had to come, I might as well try for a strike or two at least. And a while after that, I looked back and saw the cruiser was on fire. Was it still foggy then? Yeah, about the same. I could just see the glow. I couldn't even be sure what it was until I got close. I tried to get on board, but the flames were too high. I kept yelling, but there was nobody around. And you didn't see or hear any sign of Marky? No, I guess he was already dead. Then, not more than five minutes later, the cruiser sank. Yeah. Danny... Do you have any theory as to what caused the fire? Well, it was a hot plate on board. A gasoline pressure rig. It was an old one in pretty bad shape. We talked about it before. I think it may have leaked into the bulkheads in the bilge. And when Mr. Markey went to light it to fix breakfast, the whole boat just went up in flames. I see. Tell me something, Danny. Do you think Markey could have committed suicide? Suicide? Why? For what reason? Oh, maybe l losing that contract. You said it was pretty important to him. Or maybe he thought he was losing his wife. What do you mean? Well, maybe he misinterpreted your friendship with her, Danny. You're crazy. You're in love with her, aren't you? That's my business. I told you there was nothing between us. All right, all right. But didn't Marky know that? Look, you're the same age she is, and he was 15 years older. A man like that might get to wondering... Knock it off, Dollar. Nobody's private life is going to be dragged into this. You better stop and think, Danny. While you've still got time. A defendant in a murder trial doesn't have any private life. Now, here's our star to tell you about tomorrow's intriguing episode of this week's story. Tomorrow, a lady weeps, a lover curses, and a strange grim relic is brought up from the sea. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by Les Crutchfield, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. <laughs>
That's part one of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, five-part adventure called The Fathom Five Matter from February 27th, 1956. We'll have one episode each and every hour here all the way to 3 o'clock in the morning on the WGN Radio Theater. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Drivers, please stay alert when driving in all of our child-filled areas. Arrive alive, don't text and drive. This message, courtesy of Blaine's Automotive, located at 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield. For the best in automobile service, stop by 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield or call 630-877-0097. That's 630-877-0097. That's Blaine's Automotive on the air reminding everyone to arrive alive, don't text and drive. The Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show plus part two of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar is coming your way after the news. Hour two of the WGN Radio Theater. We're here every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning playing all your favorite classic radio shows. My co-host is Lisa Wolf, my executive producer, Mike Costella. In this hour, it's the Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show. Going back to 1950 plus, it's part two of the Fathom Five matter on yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey. It's all coming your way after this short break. Welcome back. Hour two of the WGN Radio Theater. I want to remind everyone listening that we have a club for classic radio lovers. It's called the Classic Radio Club, and you can learn all about it. Go to our website, ClassicRadioClub.com. If you join each and every month, you'll get 10 of the greatest sounding classic radio shows sent to you each and every month. You can get them on five CDs or on 10 digital downloads. 10 shows plus liner notes. It's all part of the Classic Radio Club. You can learn all about it. Go to ClassicRadioClub.com. All right, Lisa, you ready for Phil Harris and Alice Faye? I know you like this series. I do. I love this series. Our listeners love this, too. It was a comedy series that starred singer band leader Phil Harris and his real-life wife, actress-singer Alice Faye. It came to NBC Radio in 1948, and Phil and Alice played fictionalized versions of themselves as a working showbiz couple raising two daughters. Elliot Lewis played Phil's best friend, guitar player Frankie Remley. He got Phil into tons of hot water. You also heard Walter Tetley, who played Leroy on The Great Gildersleeve, as the obnoxious delivery boy Julius. It lasted on radio until 1954, never made a transition to television. But we have a radio broadcast for you now from January 8th, 1950. This is called Mr. Scott's Dog. Mr. Scott was the head of Rexall Drugs, which was their sponsor. Here now is the Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show. Good health to all from Rexall. It's the Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show, presented by the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Mr. Scott of Rexall and his wife are going on a motor trip for a few days. However, they have a very valuable French poodle named Madame Bovary. 
whom they would like to leave in good hands while they're gone. As we look in, we find Mr. Scott on the phone asking Phil if he'll take care of the dog while they're away. What's that, Mr. Scott? Uh, Mr. Scott, we seem to have a bad connection. What did you say? I said, I'm taking Mrs. Scott on a motor trip for a few days, and I'd like to leave Madame Bovary with you while I'm gone. Madame Bovary? Gee, Mr. Scott, I'd like to help you out, but I'm a married man. <laughs> Gee whiz, Alice is a little touchy about having other women around the house. I ain't going to... Harris, Harris, Madame Bovary is a dog. Oh, well, in that case, leave her with Remley. He don't care what they look like. <laughs> Give me strength. Look, cornball. <laughs> Madame Bovary is a dog. You know, bow wow, woof woof, arf, arf. Oh, Scotty, you've been working too hard. <laughs> Harris, listen closely. I'll spell it for you. I want to leave a D O. No, that'll get him more confused than ever. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. I, I've got it. Mr. Harris, when your wife is mad at you, where does she put you? In a doghouse. Cut it in half and you've got it. <laughs> That's what I want to leave with you. A dog. Well, why didn't you say so instead of getting me involved in one of them double-in-tandem routines? <laughs> I don't know nothing about what you're talking about. We'd be glad to take care of her. She's a nice dog. Bring her over. Thanks. I'll be right over with her. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Scott. Who called, Phil? Oh, it was Mr. Scott, honey. He's taking his wife on a motor trip, and he wants to leave his dog with us. Oh, that'll be nice for the children having a dog around. Yeah. Well, if that Scotty's coming over with that dog, I won't be able to finish painting this chair right now. Oh, you better put the paint away now. I'll put the paint can away later. You know, Phil, we should have bought the girls a dog for Christmas. Frankie promised them one, but instead he gave them that horrible, uncouth gift. Hold it, Mercedes. <laughs> What's uncouth about a pool table? <laughs> I want it in the house, and I'm going to tell Frankie. So where is it? He's in the den with the kids. Said he was going to help them with their homework. I'll call him. Hey, Remley, come in here a minute, will you? All right, Curly, I'll be right with you. Okay, Phyllis, it's your shot. <laughs> Try the six ball in the side pocket, and this time don't cheat. <laughs> Keep one foot on the floor. <laughs> now remember, you each owe me three dollars so far. <laughs> You said we were playing for fun Well, that was before I was sure I could beat you <laughs> Okay, now, stop stalling and chalk up All right Uncle Frankie, how do I make this shot? Well, that's a cinch Put a little English on the cue ball Kiss her off the seven Bank it off the corner cushion You get it right into the side pocket <laughs> It's an impossible shot She'll never make it Well, I'll try Here goes <laughs> Little wise guy Well, Phyllis and I won that game Now it's your turn to pay up All right, here's 50 cents and play money I don't get it, Uncle Frankie When we win, you pay us in play money But when you win, we have to pay you in real money How come? Fortunes of war, my child <laughs> Now, if you kids will excuse me, I'll go see what your daddy wants. Curly? Hey, do you want to see me, Curly? I want to see you, Frankie. It's about the pool table that uh -oh, you Uh-oh, uh-oh, hold it a minute. That must be Mr. and Mrs. Scott. What are the Scots coming here for? Well, they're going away on a trip, and they're stopping by for a minute. Excuse us, Frankie. Yeah. 
Hello, Harris. Mrs. Harris? Oh, hello, Mr. Scott. Come right on in. Where's Mrs. Scott? Uh, she's at home. I'm picking her up later. Well, here's Madame Bovary. Ah, uh, hiya, Poochie. Ah, <laughs> uh, 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 she's a cute little thing. Hey, Curly, does the old test tube leave yet? Oh, hi, Scotty. <laughs> oh, it's him. <laughs> hello, Remley. It's good to see you. <laughs> Thanks. It's good to see you, too. You're looking fine, Mr. Scott. Well, Mrs. Scott. <laughs> You're looking your usual charming self. <laughs> nice to see you again. <laughs> She's got a cold, eh? Remley. One more nasty... Oh, no, no. Just a mistake, Mr. Scott. Frankie can't see too well. He's wearing his nearsighted head today. <laughs> Look, Frankie... This is a dog. It isn't Mrs. Scott. Harris, I hardly think the identification is necessary. <laughs> As for you, Remley, this is the beginning of a new year. So why don't you get it off to a good start by doing away with yourself? <laughs> now, Mrs. Harris, I have to be running along now. Oh, I'll see you to the door, Mr. Scott. All right, so long, Scotty. Come on, Frankie, let's take this dog in and show it to the kids, huh? Oh, uh, by the way, Mrs. Harris, I want to leave this dog whistle with you. Yes. Incidentally, don't think the whistle's broken when you blow it, because you won't hear it, but the dog will. Oh, Mr. Scott, you've been standing too close to Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> I know I sound like him, but this is a supersonic whistle, and it's too high-pitched for the human ear, but a dog can hear it plainly. Oh, by the way, Mrs. Harris, yes. I won't be here for the program Sunday, but I'll try to listen in. I'd hate to miss your song. Oh, I'd hate to have you miss it, too. And just to make sure you don't, I'll sing it now. Bye-bye, <laughs> baby. Remember you're my baby when they give you the eye. And just to show that I care, I will write and declare that I'm on the loose, but I'll stay on the square. I'll be lonely, but even though I'm lonely, there'll be no other guy. So I'll be gone for a while. I know that I'll be smiling with my baby by and by.
Well, Mr. Scott, that's the number I'm... How do you like that? He drove off right in the middle of my song. Oh, well, as long as he sends the check every week, who cares? <laughs> I'd better put this dog whistle in a safe place. I wonder if it really works. I gotta try it. Dog heard it, but I didn't. Mr. Scott was right. It can't be heard by a human being. I'd better put it on the mantle so I'll know where it is. Well, it's a quarter to twelve. I'd better prepare lunch. Hey, Alice, where are those instructions that Mr. Scott gave you? I think this dog... Alice! Ah, well, I'll find them myself. I think she put them up on the mantle. Hey, I never saw this whistle before. Must belong to the kids. I wonder what it sounds like. <laughs> Must be broken. Maybe you have to blow it harder. <laughs> Who's blowing that darn whistle in here? <laughs> well, I'm blowing it, but... You heard it blow? Yeah. That's the shrillest sound I ever heard in my life. But, Frankie, the whistle's broken. Look, I'll show you. Put it out! Stop it! Put it out! You want to break my eardrums? <laughs> but I didn't hear nothing. I... Frankie. My ears ain't working. I must be losing my hearing. Nah, that's nothing serious. Some people are nearsighted. You just happen to be near-eared. <laughs> This is no time for jokes. Bill, lunch is ready. Eh? <laughs> oh, honey. I got awful news for you. From now on, when you whisper sweet nothings in my ear, that's what it's gonna be. <laughs> Nothing. Bill, what are you talking about? I'm losing my hearing, honey. I've been blowing this whistle and I don't hear a sound. Of course you don't. It's a supersonic whistle. It can't be heard by human beings. Only by dogs. <laughs> Well, thank goodness I'm all right. I didn't hear it, and Remley said he heard... <laughs> Remley. What are you staring at me for? <laughs> Just because I heard the whistle doesn't mean that I... 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 Hey, Curly, if only dogs can hear it and I heard it, it must mean that I... Take it easy. Take down, Rex. Uh... <laughs> Frankie carrying on so. Alice, I got something amazing to tell you. When I blew this dog whistle, Frankie heard it. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Honey, don't you understand? What did you say about the whistle? I said a human being can't hear it. But Frankie heard it. So? <laughs> what do you mean, so? This is awful. If I can hear like a dog, there must be something wrong with me. Maybe you're part Airedale. <laughs> don't be a funny man. Part Airedale. I'll have you know I'm just as human as anybody. I'll be right in, dear. No! Oh, Curly, this is All right, take it easy, Remley. Take it easy. <laughs> just quiet down a minute now. Take it easy. You're nervous. I'll soothe your nerves by singing something appropriate for a man in your condition. Oh. How about trees? <laughs> Hold it, wait a minute. 
Come to think of it, I got just a tune for you, Remley. Now sit back on your haunches, cock your ears, and listen to your master's voice. I recommend to every one of you who continue to do the things you do, apply the fundamental and let the incidental go by. Stand on the basic, firm philosophy, do it naturally, like it ought to be, apply the fundamental and let the incidental go by. When old man trouble starts in hounding your doorsteps And he's got his grip around you, brother That's the time you'd better watch your step Consequently, I recommend you Take this interview and apply to Everything you do and you will find your knowledge Is more than any college could do Cause it's only elemental to apply the fundamental And let the incidental go by Command to every one of you who continue to do the things you do, apply the fundamental and let the incidental go by. Stand on a basic, firm philosophy, do it naturally, like it ought to be, apply the fundamental and let the incidental go by. When old man trouble starts in hounding your doorstep And he's got his grip around you, brother That's the time you'd better get more hair Consequental, I beg you take this little interview And apply it to everything you do And you will find your knowledge is more than any college could do For you Cause it's only elemental to apply the fundamental And let the incidental go by Bye-bye F-U-N-D I don't know how to spell it But let the incidental go by Now I know what's wrong with my ears, Curly. I always stand too close to you when you sing. <laughs> hey, Curly, do you think maybe there's something in my ear that's causing my strange affliction? Could be. Maybe you got a tick in there. <laughs> hey, hold still, Remley. I'll look in your ear and see. All over here. Hmm. Got a dark in there. <laughs> Wait till I light a match. Now, <laughs> ah, let me see now. Hey, don't hold a match so close to my ear. Will, will you? you hold still? I want to study All this. Right. I gotta... Oh, gracious, anybody? Well, it's about time 
somebody set fire to Mr. Remley? <laughs> well, the alcohol and him, he'd make a beautiful blaze. You keep quiet, Julius. Now, hold still, Frankie. All right. Hmm. I don't see nothing in your left ear, Remley. Well, come over here and look in his right ear. I see something astounding in here. <laughs> what do you see? The light shining through from his left ear. <laughs> Julius, you can see the light shining through. <laughs> Julius, you mean. Like an empty attic. <laughs> Come here and look, Mr. Harris. It's. Oh, oh. oh, that frightened me. What frightened you? A bat just flew out of me. <laughs> Julius, one more crack out of you, and I'll. Uh... I'll spill this can of paint over you. Keep your shirt on. What are you looking at his ear for anyway, Mr. Harris? Well, kid, Mr. Remley has a very strange affliction. You see, he hears like a dog. Hey, this guy's a regular menagerie. <laughs> what do you mean, menagerie? He hears like a dog, eats like a pig, and drinks like a fish. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Harris, does any other member of his family suffer from this? Does he have any brothers or sisters? Yeah, he's one of a litter of five. <laughs> Let's see, there was Prince, King, Rover... Uh... Uh, 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 Mr. Lemley, please don't bark while us humans is talking. <laughs> that doesn't... You're getting this paint can right on your head. Uh, take that! Oh, Remley, look what you got now. You got that red paint all over the dog. How am I going to explain this to Mr. Scott? How his dog got red? Tell him his French poodle joined the Communist Party. Come <laughs> <Hello>, fellas. <laughs> Lovely kid. Yeah. He's a grand boy. <laughs> He's got all the charm of an old man's knee. <laughs> oh, Remley, now look. Just take a look at that dog. He's covered with red paint. What are we going to do? If Scotty ever sees his dog like this, I'm a cinch to lose my job. Now, we got to get the paint off of her hair. Well, look take at that. it easy, will you? We'll get it off. Oh, sure, we'll All we have it. to do is... You go answer the phone. I'll get all the right, paint off of the right. dog. Let's see. Where does Curly keep his electric razor? <laughs> okay, stop shivering, Pooch. There you are. Hey, you look great, kid. Not a hair on hey, you. Hey, Remley, I got news for you. We're cooked. That was Mr. Scott on the phone. He had to postpone his trip, and he's coming over to get his... <laughs> Remley, where'd you get that plucked chicken? That's Scotty's dog. I shaved all her hair off. Oh, no. Oh, a nude French poodle? Somehow she looks indecent. Throw a rug or a kimono or something over her. I think she looks very attractive. Only to you, Ren Tin Tin. Oh, Frankie, if Scotty sees his dog like this, he's going to raise the roof. Her fancy hairdo is the most important part of a dog. I know that, and when Scotty gets here, she'll have hair. <laughs> Hand me that bottle of glue. 
You mean you're going to paste the hair back on the dog? Oh, Curly, don't get hokey. Besides, there's paint on the old hair. I'm going to paste this on. Looks like poodle hair, but it's much more luxurious. Yeah, it is. What is that? Alice's Persian lamb muff. <laughs> I know what I'm doing every minute. Frankie, will you listen to me? You can't do that. It's too late. It's already cut, measured, and ready to fit. Now hold the dog still while I paste it oh, on. Oh, Remley, why do you always get... Well, that's all we got left to do now, and I'll tell you something. We gotta hurry, Frankie. Mr. Scott will be here any minute. Now, look, do you remember how her fancy hairdo looks? Stop worrying, will you? I'll put it on just the way it was. You'd better put it on. Yeah. Well, she's all pasted, Curly. How does she look? I don't know, Frankie. Didn't she have a tuft of hair on, on top of her head? No. It was under her chin, just the way I got it. <laughs> well, maybe you're right. Hmm? But is it supposed to be shaped like a Van Dyke? <laughs> she looks like an ad for Bach beer. <laughs> I think she looks swell. Notice how deftly I applied these clumps of fur here and there. Gives her a look of studied carelessness <laughs> Well, maybe she looks all right but Wait a minute hmm? What's that limp strip of fur hanging down the back of her? Oh, that's her new tail <laughs> New tail? Mm-hmm What happened to her old one? Well, while I was working on her She kept swishing it in my face So I glued it to her stomach Frankie, this is a sad-looking animal, and I know that Scotty is oh, going to be... Are, Harris. Oh, Mrs. Harris told me you had my beautiful dog in here. And I... I... What is that horrible monstrosity? That horrible monstrosity is your beautiful dog. What happened to her? She used to have hair on top of her head and all along the top of her shoulders. Now she has it hanging from her chin and under her stomach. Turn her upside down. She'll be as good as new. <laughs> I should have known better than to leave her here with you two maniacs. Come, Madame Bovary, we're going home. Daddy will pick you up. I can't budge her. Remley, you put too much glue on her stomach and she's stuck to the floor. Pull a little harder, Scotty. Oh, oh you poor dog. But don't worry. We'll get back at those two right now. Now, wait a minute, Scotty. Wait a minute. Take it easy. Don't sick that dog on us. Dog nothing. I'm going to bite you myself. Oh, wait. Don't roll yourself. I can explain. I didn't mean to. Scotty, stop chewing on my leg. Take off your guard, you coward. Oh, no. <laughs> Alice and Phil will be back in just a moment. But right now, our Rexall family druggist has a customer. What's the name of that Rexall antacid you sold me a little while back? You must mean Bismarex, ma'am. Bismarex, that's it. I don't think I've ever found faster relief for acid indigestion. Well, that's because Bismarex works like a team in a relay race. Like a relay race? What on earth do you mean? Well, the carefully balanced ingredients in Bismarex vary in the time required for solubility. 
so that each one works in sequence, like a four-man relay race. I get it. One ingredient starts in where the other leaves off. That's it. The first man, or ingredient, promptly relieves the heartburn that comes from food fermentation in the stomach. The next one races to neutralize hyperacidity. The third one eases gastric distress. And the Finnish man leaves a soothing protective covering for irritated stomach membranes. No wonder Bismarex gives such fast relief. Well, ma'am, that kind of quality applies to all of Rexall's 2,000 or more drug products. And that's why 10,000 family druggists will tell you you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. This program was produced and directed by Paul Phillips. Included in today's cast were Gail Gordon and Stan Freeberg. Frank Remley was played by Elliot Lewis, and Julius was played by Walter Tetley. Stay tuned for Sam Spade, then two great stars on Theater Guild on NBC. And that's the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show from January 8th, 1950, a show called Mr. Scott's Dog, starring Phil Harris and Alice Faye. You heard Gail Gordon as Mr. Scott on that broadcast, Elliot Lewis and Walter Tetley in the cast, sponsored by Rexall, is heard on NBC. Okay, if you're ready, so am I. It's part two of the Fathom Five Matter, starring Bob Bailey. This is from February 28th, 1956. Here's yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Barney Wilson, Mr. Dollar, special deputy with the DA's office. I understand you talked to Danny Haynes. You've got a good grave mind, Mr. Wilson. Oh, tolerable. Well, what do you think? Well, I'll go about six to five. He hasn't murdered anybody. Oh, well, that's close to even money. So you're not too sure, huh? No, I'm not too sure. But then I'm not even sure yet that Marky is dead, Remember? Well, maybe we can settle that question this evening. What do you mean? The salvage boys have finally got grapple lines on that boat. They figured to bring it up to the surface around 8 o'clock. I'm going out in one of the harbor launches. You'd like to come along? My company's got a 75 grand stake in this. Sure, I'd like to come along. All right. You meet me at Harbor Police Headquarters at 7.30. I'll be there. Good. I'll introduce you to the late William Markey. Somehow, I sort of doubt that, Mr. Wilson. <laughs> Tonight, and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Home Office, Delta Liability, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment, the Phantom Five matter. Location, Miami, Florida. Expense account continued. Item six, $3.85. Taxi fare to the Markey Beach House, occupied for the past three days now by his wife since William Markey's accidental death. According to all reports, a very beautiful woman. The reports were correct. Won't you come in, Mr. Dollar? Thank you. Come this way. I've been practically living in here in the study since... I just haven't had the heart to even look at the rest of the house. 
Yes, I, uh, I imagine it's been quite a shock for you, Mrs. Markey. Yes, terrible. No one knows. Sit down, Mr. Dollar. Thank you. I, uh, I really don't know very much about these matters. If there are papers to sign, maybe I should have a lawyer or something. No, that won't be necessary for the present. There's nothing to sign. But aren't you with the insurance company? I'm working for them at the moment as a special investigator. Oh. I'm to supply them with a full report of your husband's accident. They have to have that before they can do anything about paying off the policy. Well, couldn't the police give you all that? And there's a Mr. Wilson, I think his name is, who's with the district I've talked to Mr. Wilson. He's cooperating in every way possible. But uh, some of the details I have to get from you. Have you talked with Danny Haynes? Yes. Well, didn't he tell you what happened? He gave me a statement, yes. But only covering the details he actually knew about. Well, I'm sure there's nothing I can add, Mr. Dollar. I, I wasn't even there, as you know, of course. I know, Mrs. Markey. I'll get all of those details elsewhere. But then I don't see why you've well, come out uh, here. Well, I'd, I'd like to know a few things about your husband. Things you'd know better than anybody else. Uh, his actions and behavior during the last few weeks. His uh, mental attitude. I see. You think maybe he committed suicide, is that it? I don't think anything. I'm just trying to find out. But that's what you're driving at. Suicide. It's a possibility, of course. And of course, your company isn't liable, I suppose, if it's oh, suicide. It'd still be liable, but only to the extent of $25,000 under the particular terms of the policy, not 75000 I see. Is that all, Mr. Dollar? I don't think you do see. Look, I'm not claiming it was suicide. I, I have no reason to think it was. But these questions are going to be raised by the claims board when they meet to consider settlement. And they're not going to pay out any money until they have the answers. So that's why I'm here, Mrs. Markey, to get those answers ahead of time. Now, you can help or you can hinder. But I think you ought to realize that you'll be mainly hindering yourself. It was not suicide. Bill wasn't that kind. You didn't know him. I resent your implication, Mr. Dollar. He'd never do a thing like that. I said I have no reason to believe that he did. I... Please forgive me. I guess I'm sort of living in a state of shock. I'm not like this, really. Suspicious, belligerent. Well, sure, I understand, and I'm I'm sorry to have to bother you this way, but there are certain questions... I know, I know. These things have to be done. It's all right. Would you like a drink, Mr. Dollar? Not unless you're having one. Yes, I think I would like something. In that case, I'll have a scotch on the rocks, please. Oh, here, let me fix them. Thank you. Make mine the same. I guess it was the mention of suicide that set me off. Bill and I were married for three years. We were completely happy every minute of it. Nobody in the world had less reason than Bill to do a thing like that. What about financial problems? None that I knew about. Did you work before your marriage, Mrs. Markey? I was an entertainer. Chorus? Yes. I suppose that gives you the usual impression. <laughs> well, do I seem like a visiting fireman? No, but... I just thought you might have been a dancer because you carry yourself so well. Lithe and graceful. Well, I, I've been away from it for quite some time. It doesn't show. Here's your drink. Thank you. Maybe it'll help me relax a little. I think it might. Uh, tell me, Mrs. Markey, how did your husband and young Haynes get along? Well, that should be obvious. We brought him down here with us. Had him living here in the house for a month. But I, uh, I understood that was primarily your idea. Who said that? Did you suggest bringing Haynes along, or was it your husband? Well, I, I might have. I don't remember how it came up now, but Bill was all for it. Otherwise, he'd have put his foot down. Any possibility that he resented Haynes' presence but kept it to himself? Of course not. Why should he? I don't know. Well, if you're trying to imply something... I'm not. I'm just asking. I understood your husband had spells of brooding during the last few weeks, and I was trying to find out the reason for it. If he did, I'm sure I didn't notice it. 
What are Danny Haynes' feelings towards you? I think you're pretty insulting. I wasn't intending to be. Well, what would you call it? Just another routine question. I wasn't meaning to imply that you encourage him in any way. I certainly didn't. But he's young, impetuous. You're very attractive. Maybe he cooked up crazy notions without any encouragement. He thought of me as a friend, that's all. No attitudes on his part that your husband might have misinterpreted. I don't believe I care to answer any more questions like these, Mr. Dollar. Look, I'm not just asking them for my own pleasure, Mrs. Markey. I'd rather not ask them, but, but I've got a job to do. But I fail to see why it's necessary to probe into our private lives. All right, I'll tell you why. Your husband supposedly died out there beyond the surf when a cruiser burned and sank. You mean supposedly? His body hasn't been recovered, so at present the evidence of his death is purely circumstantial. In fact, there isn't much evidence one way or another. Who could possibly doubt it? The insurance company will doubt it, Mrs. Markey. And they'll hold up processing any claim for payment until one of two things happens. Until I turn up sufficient proof of death to convince them... Or until a court declares your husband legally dead. I didn't bring Barney it. Wilson from the DA's office, for reasons of his own, is going to file for an immediate court decision. I'm pretty sure of that. It's... But as things stand now, my company will fight it. And with no more evidence than Wilson has, they'll be able to fight it successfully. But all those questions, what was the point? What were you driving at? Your husband's death had to result from one of three possible causes. One, an accident. Two, suicide. Three, murder. Murder? But that, that, there was... There was no one with him except... Do you mean Danny? That's one possibility. One out of three. Oh, no. I have no reason at the moment to give it any more weight than the other two. But there is one thing certain, Mrs. Markey. In view of the circumstances, not one cent of insurance is going to be paid until one of those causes is proved. But what can I do? I don't know anything about it. Maybe you don't. Or maybe there's something you've forgotten, don't think is important. Or something you haven't wanted to talk about. I don't know, of course. But it might be worth thinking about. It was nearly dark when I left the house, and I wouldn't have noticed the man standing under a palm tree by the driveway if he hadn't made a sudden move to get out of sight. Then when I walked toward him, he scurried out of the drive and slipped into a car parked at the street. I could see it was an old model, but I couldn't identify the make. I caught the last three numbers on the license plate before it disappeared around a bend. I couldn't quite figure it. It might have been Haynes, or some ghoulish swindler who was scared off when he saw the widow wasn't alone. The numbers were 642. Expense account item 7, $3.75. Taxi back to my hotel. Item 8, $6 and a quarter. Dinner and incidentals there. And item 9, $1.40. Taxi again to the waterfront headquarters of the Harbor Police. 30 minutes later, I was in a police launch with Deputy Agent Barney Wilson, several miles down the coast, skimming across the water toward a bright cluster of spotlights where a salvage barge was working into the night to raise the burned hulk of the charter cruiser Fathom 5. You still got your mind set the same way, Mr. Dollar? What way was that? That there hasn't been any death or any murder? Oh, come now, Mr. Wilson. You're mistaking an honest scientific skepticism for a set of mine. Well, it's very pretty, Mr. Dollar. What does it mean? Well, I haven't taken any definite position yet. But I've got to see more evidence before I'll consider proof of death to be established without a question. That means you'll file a demurrer against a declaration by the courts, huh? It's not up to me. It's up to the company. But I can tell you right now that if you petition, they'll move to block it. You have no real evidence, Mr. Wilson. I'm getting it, though, piece by piece. The sea is starting to give up its prey, Mr. Dollar. What do you mean? The boys found a shoe late this afternoon, washed up in the surf just about where you'd expect to find it if it had been carried in by the current. Identifiable? From the same New York shop that Marky's other shoes came from. Same size, same style. Well, it's something, all right. 
But it's still not conclusive. Who would he ask? That Marky walks up and tells you he's dead? No. No, I guess I'd settle for just seeing him that way. Oh, by the way, I wonder if you could have an auto license checked for me. A partial license on a used car. Florida plates. The last three numbers are 642. Well, it might take a while with no more than that to go on. Well, I've got an idea the car may have been purchased within the last three weeks or so. Maybe that'll narrow it down. You got an idea it may mean something? Look, I have no idea at all. I'm just playing the hunches. But it's about time something in this case started meaning something. We edged the launch up the side of the barge, tied up to a stanchion, and climbed on deck. The power winches on the derricks were still grinding away, and the sunken hull of the burned cruiser was nearing the surface. A crew of men waited with salvage pontoons, ready to float the supporting cradle into place as soon as the waterlogged hulk was raised. Wilson and I stood by the rail, watching, not talking, wondering, I suppose, what answers the wreck might supply us with. The taut steel cables inched their way slowly up from the depths, and finally the boat itself broke the surface of the water. Then the men moved in with the pontoons, and other crew members dropped a suction hose into the water-filled hull and started a pump to empty. Finally, the whole thing was high enough so we could see that the cabin and the deck were badly burned, almost destroyed. But strangely enough, the hull itself seemed to be undamaged. Then Wilson and I both noticed something at the same time, a solid column of water spotting from a round hole near the keel of the boat, and we both realized what it meant. Look, Dollar! Look there! Somebody opened the seacocks! Somebody left them wide open! So one thing is certain, it wasn't an accident. She was sunk deliberately. That's exactly what I've been trying to tell you right from the start. Huh? William Markey was murdered. Now, here's our star to tell you about tomorrow's intriguing episode of this week's story. Tomorrow, a photograph, a silver cup, a harried widow, and the dead begin to stir with life. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by Les Crutchfield, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking. That's yours truly, Johnny Dollar, part two of this five-part adventure called The Fathom Five Matter. That's from February 28th, 1956, starring Bob Bailey. More of the WGN Radio Theater after these words. Hey, Lisa, you know what? What? I have been loving Vistro. I've been eating it every single day. Well, me too. Uh, This is such a great time to appreciate Vistro because what they do is they cook and deliver fresh food right to my door. And um, I really appreciate that. I'm not such a great cook. I know cooking is... You, you're not a good cook. Not such a great cook. I know cooking really isn't your thing either. No, it's not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But they have chefs over there at the Vistro kitchen. They cook from fresh, organic 
aromatic ingredients with their chef delivered frozen right to my door. I know how you know how to use the microwave. Yep. And that's all you absolutely need for Vistro. Yep. Uh, Vistro is 100% plant-based. It's organic ingredients, fully prepared, preservative-free, and basically you heat, eat, and enjoy the great food. What yep. is better than that? I don't know because I don't know what I've done without Vistro all this time that I've been quarantined i know you so, know some of I you what are some Vistro. of your favorite entrees well from i like the lasagna i love the chicken right i love the breakfast oatmeal it's right. amazing i like the calzones right they have Just great, great food yeah and here's the great thing one thing that is better about vistro is they are now offering 15 percent off their first order wow off of your first order right so if you go to the website v-e-e-s-t-r-o.com there'll be a promo code there for you to get 15 percent off your very first order. I love Vistro. Carl, I know you are enjoying it as well. I hope you guys will give it a shot. It is delicious, terrific food. Go to Vistro, V-E-E-S-T-R-O dot com. Drivers, please stay alert when driving in all of our child-filled areas. Arrive alive, don't text and drive. This message, courtesy of Blaine's Automotive, located at 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield. For the best in automobile service, stop by 11917 South Arrow Drive in Plainfield or call 630-877-0097. That's 630-877-0097. That's Blaine's Automotive motive on the air reminding everyone to arrive alive don't text and drive in our next hour it's escape starring ben wright then it's part three of yours truly johnny dollar it's all coming your way after the news